so what I'd like to do now is actually look at three emotions which are relatively habitual and to look at the different level and then we'll have uh, questions and discussion and then little sitting walking and then I'll fill in, finish with love and relationship. So the first one I wanted to look at was fear. This is again something which is very common as human beings. And I think actually fear is a natural survival mechanism. We really, I think it's very important uh, to experience it because it tells us to be careful. It tells us to preserve ourselves. And I think in a way the system, even the physical system is set up to survive. Many years ago, I was in Woodacre and I was Woodacre or Fairfax, maybe Fairfax. And I went for a walk with Stephen. And as I was coming back, and it was uh, afternoon, sunny, in October, I was walking and suddenly I took a huge leap, an Olympic leap. And Stephen said, what happened? He'd never seen me kind of jump that way, <laughs> as high as fast. And I also did not know what happened because my body moved before I could think. Because what happened is that as I was going to put my feet back on the ground, right there, there was a small rattlesnake basking in the sun. Oh. And so before I even said, to my mind, rattlesnake, my body had moved. <laughs> so fear is really this, I would say, very vital <laughs> survival mechanism. But then, when it becomes habituated, and especially if it's intense, if you're <gasps> in like really kind of intense fear, then generally it paralyzes you. It freezes us. And I remember... A few years back, I was doing, I don't know how you call it in America, but kind of, you know, when you jump in trees and go shh, through. Zipline. That's it, zipline. So I was doing zipline, <laughs> thousand stuff with my niece. And that was the first time we went. And she was like, you know, very awkward, very frightened. You know, something bad is going to happen. She was so frightened. I said, okay. Let's drop the zip line and the various uh, obstacle course. Let's go on a nice walk in the tree. Because they had this kind of like, you know, bridge, like rope bridge with planks. You know, you, can, you go up and up and up and it's not that complicated. So we go up and up and up and up. And we may be 10 meters high in the top of the trees, ancient French trees. And my knees seven years old, says to me in the middle, the highest point, Auntie, I am so frightened. Let's get out. But, I mean, there was no elevator. <laughs> so I had to convince her. You know, I told her to be, you know, be aware of the body, breathe deeply, you know, I kind of... And then slowly, slowly, we managed to make it down because we had the other half to get down. So we get down, we walk on the ground, and then she turns to me, totally puzzled. And she said, but auntie, why were you not afraid? I was so frightened. 
And I said to her, but because it was safe. Because we're attached with this, we're attached to that, and it's totally safe. Ah! So then she goes to the monitor and she said, is it true that we save because of the, the rope and everything? And he said, yeah, you're safe. So then, bless her heart, she then goes on the obstacle course and jump to see what happened. And it's true, she's safe. And after that, she was so elegant and fluid and going fast. And it was such a different experience. Like there was a, a freedom instead of this paralyzing fear. But I think also we have to see that fear is very physical. And that's what I learned doing this obstacle course. Because then the niece wanted to do the Tarzan. Tarzan, you take a rope, you go into a net, and each time it's higher. So three meters, five meters, ten meters. So three meters fine, five meters fine. 10 meters, the body saying, no way. We're not going to do this. But I had to, you know, do it because I was, you know, the auntie who, I had to do it. So I forced, my mind forced my body to jump. I got the net, I get to the platform and my whole body My mind was fine. I was fine. I was not afraid, but my body was, I did not agree to this. <laughs> and so to me that was fascinating to see that I was okay <coughs> mentally I was not afraid but my body was afraid that was very interesting and then you know it calmed down then another time we go and again we have to go through the thousand thing and what was interesting is at that time the body seems to have learned because I did the jump got on the platform nothing no trembling nothing and so that's also, I thought, was interesting, that learning process. That also the body can learn, oh yeah, I can do this in these circumstances. So, but when we are in an intense fear, because the situation is very frightening, then oh, we just either free or we fl flee or thing like that. And it's very paralyzing. And so in a way, to me, that's why the, the question of my niece is an important one when we feel intensely fearful, to ask, have I a good reason? If I'm really frightened, have I a good reason? Is somebody threatening with me with a gun? Is somebody beating me up? Then yes, you have a good reason. And then, you know, get out. You know, do something, get out. Find a way to kind of do what you can in that terrible situation. But sometimes we're really afraid and actually nothing is going on. And so that's why I think the, the meditation we're going to do afterward is this questioning to help us to question a little more in a stable way. Like sometimes you have that experience, you wake up in the middle of the night and you wake up and you feel, <gasps> you know, especially if you're alone at night in your house. I notice that when my husband is there, it never happens. <laughs> So I wake up, and I'm like, the whole body is like, and then, oh, okay. I just wake up in the middle of the night, just breathe deeply. And then it takes a good 10 minutes to shh, just bring the thing down. 
So I think it's kind of in a way for us to see. I think the breath can be there quite helpful with fear, but also the questioning can help us. And as the Buddha says, in order not to be afraid, don't go to dangerous places. <laughs> Which I think is not a bad idea. <laughs> like one of his things for the precept of the lay people is don't go and saunter. Kind of don't go kind of, you know, hanging out at night. Because you might get into trouble. I mean, I'm not saying you should not, but think about it. <laughs> then you have the habit. When it's habitual tension, uh, fear is like tension. It's like, you, it's like you, your system is innovated. It's like that. And this is what I experience when I go to South Africa. When I, what is interesting, we go to South Africa to teach every three years or five years nowadays. And what is weird is when we come back. We've been there for six weeks. We come back home and for two days... Stephen and I look at each other and say, this is so safe here. It feels so different. Because there's a, you, everybody is telling you a story about somebody being knife or carjacked and be careful with this, be careful with that. And then also what I found is that when if I am with somebody who is really afraid, it's contagious. I think this is something we have to see. Fear is contagious. So once I stayed with this person, was so afraid that within 10 minutes, I was the same. And so, you know, going out, it was like anything frightened me, you know. And it was like very innovating. And then my friend, my good friend, who is a really solid meditation adventurer person, he arrives and within five minutes, no fear. Because he's so there. Nothing. He's really kind of the type of person who is really solid, really stable, and really unfrightened. He doesn't frighten easily. And then when I'm with him, poof, it all goes. And to me, this makes me think, do I want to propagate fear? Do I want to be contagious? So in a way, to look, I mean, of course, sometimes things can be dangerous, and we have to be careful. And we have to be fearful. But I think some of the time our life is so, in the modern world, so comfortable that often we have nothing to be afraid of. But fear itself, as some people say. And then you have like light, light fear. Careful. Just a little light. And it's interesting, how does it feel? When you just start. And one way to experience that and be aware of it and see what you do with it is when you're driving a car or you're a passenger in a car and you have a near accident. So, you know, you have a crossroad and... I mean, in America, everybody would stop and wait. Yes. To me, a French person, this is so amazing that everybody waits for each other and polite. In French, this would never work. Stephen keeps telling me, you know, in France, we have all these big roundabouts, really ex expensive roundabouts. He said, look, America, you just wait for each other. I said, France, never, ever. <laughs> they have to change their metabolism. <laughs> so anyway, you are in France, and you have a crossroad, and you take your life into your hands. 
And so you nearly have an accident, but you don't have it. It's drops. And what is interesting is how you feel. <gasps> I nearly had <gasps> If this had happened and my car would have been total. <gasps> and then you have the opportunity to see. Do I grasp and amplify and it continue and continue for the next two days? Or am I just aware, oh, this is fear. That's how it feels like. And just observe it. Nothing happened. Next time I'll be more careful at that place. And then it goes. It's very interesting there because you really, it's kind of light in some way. And you can really see, do I grasp or do I creatively engage? And then also I think what is important, and that's why I think the so one of the things about meditation in terms of fear is that each time you come back, you come back to the present. And when you come back to your experience right here, right now, the question is, is there any danger or not? And to me, that's why I saw this when I was in Korea. And sometimes in Korea, they do this non-sleep meditation. So you sit all day and you sit all night. And we decided with the girls living in our little room, we were going to do it. So, and I was not worried about the meditation. Meditation all day, all night, no problem. What I was worried was actually going outside to the toilet because it was outside in the middle of the night and dying of a heart attack because of fear. And so I thought, you know, it's three o'clock in the morning, two o'clock in the morning, going to the bathroom. It's going to be tough. So I go to Master Kuzan, the Zen teacher, and I tell him, you know, I'm so afraid of the night, you know, and we want to do this sitting. And then he said, ask the question, what is this? Do your practice. So I thought it would be like a magical talisman. It would protect me from the guy out there going to get me. So I would go out. So during the three days we did the non-sleep, I went out and then I would say, what is this? What is this? What is this? <laughs> and actually it worked. But not because it was magic. Because actually going back to what is this would bring me back to the moment. And to reality and awareness. In the middle of the night, in a, tie, in a monastery, in the mountain, who would know that I was there to come and get me? <laughs> very, very unlikely. <laughs> so I came back to non-amplification. That there was nobody out there wanting to get me. And nobody got me ever there. <laughs> and that thing I used for a long time. You know, to just come back to what is it whenever I was walking in the dark at night. And I found that so helpful because it really diminished the fear. And just kind of, okay, I have to be careful, but I don't have to be totally overwhelmed by it. Then another thing we fear is to look, especially nowadays in our relatively safe uh, modern world, that a lot of the time, Nothing is happening. Truly, nothing is going on. But suddenly we're afraid by the what if. So actually often what we're afraid is not now. 
not now, now we're fine. But often we're afraid in the future. What if this happened? What if that happened? And I had a friend like this for 20 years. He was worried that something would happen. And if that thing happened, his life would be finished. He would just be, <coughs> nothing would work. And then it happened. And he was so surprised. Because he did not fall apart whatsoever. And actually, he could deal with the situation quite well. But you see, fear in advance is in abstraction, is total proliferation. So it becomes really big, but your creative potential cannot do anything about it. And so that's why I think to be careful when we feel fear, to see, okay, what is this? Is, it, is there any danger or not? So that's why we're not fearful now when actually the fear is in the future. There is this, I don't know if you know this film. I was kind of one evening vaguely zapping the TV and I fell upon t- Dinotopia. I don't know if you've heard about this film with dinosaurs and people and fine things like that. But I thought it was the best quote if any film I ever seen. So I'm like lying there and suddenly I think, wait a minute. Because there is this episode where you have this, you know, 10 trainee getting to be really, you know, good trainee going to save the world and all this. So they have to go through all this obstacle and adventure. Then you have the final test. And they have to jump over a chasm, like a huge chasm. So, you know, you have everybody does it, even the ladies do it, you know. So, and then you have the hero who is kind of in the making and he's very afraid. So he gets to, he's like this, last one to pass, jump over the chasm. And then the instructor says, fear is in the future, jump now. Isn't it nice? And he does not jump, but it works out in the end. (laughs) Then you have the next one, is anger. And I think, again, this is just um, functioning of the organism. It generally gives us energy, it's fiery, but, of course, it also agitates us. This is a thing with anger. It gives us energy. It kind of like it's kind of a fire, it's kind of like... Uh, and I think there is a good positive anger. I mean, I saw it in action once. I was just kind of sitting, there was one of these Dalai Lama things, and then tacked to it, there was this Dalai Lama conference, conference about peace. So you had interface about peace, everybody was saying, oh, peace, everybody was peaceful and everything like that. Oh, peace, peace, yes, yes, yes. And suddenly you had this little guy, French guy, coming on the podium. And he said, I am angry. And everybody woke up. And he's uh, one of my heroes. And he said, I'm angry. I am angry at poverty. I am angry at homelessness. And to me, that was good anger. Because the guy is one of the first guys in the 1950s in France who really took the problem of the homeless to heart. And he became an MP, although he was a priest, Catholic priest. And he really did something about it. He really created a whole movement called Emmaus about that. So his anger 
gave him the energy to do something about it. So I think at that level, anger is not necessarily a bad thing. But then when anger, if anger becomes a habit, then it's kind of we have to look at what are the conditions for anger to come out. And generally is, that's very interesting, why am I angry? Like, for example, if you're intensely angry, you explode. And then when you explode, generally, wisdom, compassion, it all goes. I mean, I rarely do this nowadays. It's kind of last time I did it, I think it was about 10 years ago. But it was, I do it extremely rarely. So last time I did it, I had not done it for five years or more. So it was kind of a bit long time I had not experienced it. So I, somebody was saying something, it really, I mean, really got me. And so I said, oh. I said, da, 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 da. But what was clear, because I could see with awareness what was going on. And wisdom, I could not speak clearly. I could not make sense. That's a problem with explosive anger. You can't make sense. And so generally it doesn't, I mean, it kind of, it happens, so it happens. And after I, I apologize and things like this, but it's not helpful because generally it's destabilizing. Generally, anger, when it's this kind of negative habit pattern, it's generally agitating. And it agitated in such a way that there is no wisdom in that moment. But of course, sometimes you can't help it. But again, how can you not amplify it? And then you have, you know, anger as a kind of like you are, that's one way you react to obstacle, to frustration, to things not going your way. One day I was having this uh, discussion with another Buddhist, but it was a Buddhist argument. <laughs> you don't shout, but <laughs> this is not a dialogue. So she was saying, but you never did it. And I said, well, I did not do it that time, but in the future I will do it, but you never do it, do it. So, you, you know, I can't trust you to do it again. <laughs> so it went like that, you know. And so finally I had to stop it because I had to work. I used to be a cook for a conference thing. So I had to go and do my cooking. So I start, you know, peel my carrots and I'm starting to cutting my carrots. And then suddenly I realize I'm going like, Ugh. so I say, oh, wait a minute, this is a bit dangerous, you know, this kind of cutting carrot like this. And then I go inside the body and inside the body, I was trembling. I, my whole body was shaking because of the anger. And then I realized, this is suffering. And I am doing this to myself. Nobody is doing this to me. And just the seeing of it, it totally went. Totally, but you, to me, that's only when it will, can go, is when we can really see the suffering of it. That actually we are doing it. But not doing it in a judging way, but doing it in, oh, I don't have to do this. And it just went. And then I looked in the mind, what was feeding the hunger in the mind. And I was going, I am right. She is wrong. I am right. She is wrong. And then I realized she was thinking the same way, but the opposite side. And I thought, and I thought yeah, we both right and wrong. And, and it just went. So in a way, that's why I think awareness, creative awareness as a power of illumination 
It's not that you're staring at reality, but that you engage with reality in a creative way. So you can, you can start to see it differently. And then you have anger as a light, light stuff. So you're irritable, impatient. And that's interesting when you feel, like you can feel it in the supermarket. You are in the queue. The wrong queue, of course. <laughs> All the others are going faster than yours. And know the time I choose wrongly. And then you, you can see, you can see, you can, you kind of like nearly kind of magically kind of trying to impel everybody to go faster. It's kind of like sending some vibes, you know. And I find it's very interesting to just do standing meditation. So just stand meditation. I can be here, just there. And then you see the movement. And you just go back to the standing meditation. I find very interesting. Supermarket, post office, whatever. Wonderful practice in cues. Wonderful. And in a way, what is interesting, I think, with uh, anger is to see that you're not always angry. I mean, you could have a tendency to be irritable to be impatient. But you're not always irritable. You're not always impatient. And then I think it's important to look what is a trigger and what are the contributing factors. To me, this is a thing to look at. What is it that's more likely to make us fearful? What is it that is more likely to make us angry, to make us irritable? And I would say one of the big things with anger is Tiredness. When you're tired, then if you have a tendency to be irritable, that's where it goes. And then you look for somebody to be irritated with. <laughs> Instead, you could have the choice to see, hmm, I'm tired. Maybe I could go and rest. So I think it's, there's something to really look at. What are the contributing factors to that? And really work on those. Then you have the last one I wanted to talk about was low mood. And in a way, low mood is, you could say, the opposite of anger because there it doesn't have energy. And the problem with low mood is that once it starts, you go down, 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 and then you have the more, more and more less energy. So in order to help yourself, you have less and less energy to help yourself. And I think with low mood, it's very important to really catch it at the beginning, because otherwise <coughs> you can go very, very down. But I think also low mood as a function, I think it has different function. One of them is actually to make us stop, to make us rest, that we cannot always be buzzing. I know, you know, like, oh, another thing I see everywhere at the moment. What's the name of this thing? Red something. Red Bull, that's it, you know. I see it everywhere. And so it looks like you need Red Bull to kind of really be kind of, you know, on top, buzzing all the time. But I don't think we can buzz all the time. I don't think we kind of, you know, our body has to rest. And I think this kind of low mood is a little, too, okay, I need to take a little break. I need to rest. I need to, okay, to go at a, you know, lesser pace but not be taken over by it. Because I think the problem with low mood 
is that it triggers what I think is a little dangerous, it's self-pity. Self-pity is kind of, poor me, poor me. And then shh, you really go down. Let me give you a little example. Waiting. We don't like to wait nowadays. You know, think time is money. When I was in Korea, I mean, sometimes I waited two hours. It was totally normal then. But now I think they're more modern, so they're more on time. But when I was there in the 70s, like, I had a friend, really good friend. She could arrive two or three hours late than the appointment. And then I really got used to it. I thought, you know, let's see what happened, you know. <laughs> Coming, going. And, uh, but, not, but, you know, in the West, time, nine o'clock, he or she is not here. Ten past nine, he or she does not love me. Nine twenty, nobody loves me. Nine thirty, I hate the world. But we can easily do this, very easily do this. And we can go to a very dark place. So I think in a way to see like, you know, the person is not there. Creative engagement, try to phone. What happened? Oh, I thought it was next week. This happened to me recently. Okay, fine, then I can do something else. So in a way to, instead of kind of again amplifying, just, okay, how can I creatively engage in this moment? So in a way, low mood, when it's intense, it's actually very painful because you have a feeling of loss, of emptiness, of hopelessness, of meaninglessness. And we have to be very careful because the more we ruminate in this kind of mood, the more it's kind of really can be very, very painful. And so in a way, that is really one when I would say try to know it when it's light and really when you can help yourself at that point. Otherwise, in a way, it's kind of nearly you have to wait to bottom out and once you bottom them out, you can only go up, which, of course, works also, but it's very painful going down. That's a little the problem. And then this passes, and, of course, you will go up again. That's true. Then when it's habitual, habitual, I think it's very important to see when I'm in a low mood and it's a little habitual, to kind of see what, what, what are the conditions, what are the circumstances. And generally, we feel blocked, or often one reason again, tiredness, illness, sleeplessness. I think it's very important to see that there are a lot of contributing factors to make us feel in a low mood. And one of them is not having enough physical energy. So personally, I don't think low mood is just mental or emotional. I think also it can be very physical. So in a way, to be very careful how the three can come together and then really reinforce each other. So to be, again, very careful with our energy and really try to kind of rest when we need to. I'm a great believer in resting, not resting all the time. But like when I do, I do this trip and uh, I'm generally quite full of energy and full of beans. And I know when I'll go back home in some weeks, for a week, I will be, psh, I will just have no energy whatsoever. So I will just do the minimum, lie down a lot, read 
easy detective novel of that type of things, or fashion magazine, whatever I get my hand on. And then after a few days, at one point I'd feel it. Ah, I am back up again. So I don't identify with the mood. I just know I am tired. I have to wait for it to pass. And then suddenly it comes up. Suddenly it's there again. So you need to be careful. That's one thing I would be, to be careful with the amount of energy we have. And then we have light. What I would call the light low mood. What you could call a gray mood. And I saw that when I used to live in England, in Devon, in, uh, in, uh, in the winter. Suddenly I would kind of wake up but uh, I was feeling really heavy. And um, I could look, nothing had happened, so I would just notice it. And I would feel this heaviness, this grayness. And I just observed it. I continued to do what I had to do and I knew it was there. But generally, at some point, a week or two weeks, something would happen, and then the mood would totally change. It would go, but there was generally not much I could do about it, as long as I, what was important was not to amplify, just to observe it, in a way, coming and going, be there. And one time, the way I kind of work with it, I woke up and I had it, and I thought, hmm, I need to do something creative. So I took some woodwork class. So I went to kind of work on wood once a week. That really made a difference. That's why I think creativity can also very much help us there, as long as we're not kind of identifying with what we're producing, but just doing it out of creativity itself. And so in a way, with these emotional patterns, to see what I find is very important to see that I don't always am in those it is not always happening. Also that sometimes it's light, sometimes habitual, sometimes intense. To see also that I am not like that. This does not necessarily define me. I am not an angry person, a sad person, a fearful person. But according to condition, I can experience fear. I can experience anger. I can experience low mood. And so how can I in a way, creatively engage with the conditions that produce the mood. And then once the mood is there, how can I creatively engage with it? As we said, either accepting it, waiting it for it to pass, or how can I transform it? And often the transformation will be a little about looking at what in the conditions can help me. And then finding, I mean, this is in a way, the key point, finding the awareness, finding the power to think, maybe I am not stuck. Maybe I can try, try to do something here. But not to think about what is the most I can do. But I would say, what is the least I can do here? What is the smallest thing I can find the energy to do in this situation? So that's what I wanted to say. Are there any questions or comments? Yes? When you say... Uh, when you say low mood, is that the same as we would say depression here? No, to, uh, me, to me, dep depression is... Uh, is uh, you, you could have a depressed mood 
and you could have depression. I think depression, when it be, a low mood can lead to depression with certain people, not everybody. And also, a depression for me is an illness. Is that, you know, like, low mood is different. You can, you can still go about doing things. When if you have a depression, then again, you have to see, is it kind of like a, a relatively light depression, if we can say that, or an intense one? Because when you have intense depression, you can't even get out of bed. So I think then it becomes kind of an illness. And then I think what one has to see is first there can be some condition uh, which might make you feel depressed. I mean, you know, sometimes things don't work out, you really feel stuck, you have little energy, you are ill. I mean, there can be condition which will uh, help it arise. Also, I think there can be like uh, the, what I would call more like the ruminating depression, which is more thought-based. And nowadays there is this mindfulness-based cognitive therapy for depression, which can be very helpful. There is a very good book on that. But then you have also what I would call a depression, which are more like what I would call physically emotional thing, when it's more like a mood. You know, suddenly it's not the thought are not doing much, but you feel, you feel low, you feel without energy, you feel weepy, you feel sad. Again, do you feel that way just out of nowhere? And then it seems to me it's more physiological, biological. Or do you feel that way because, you know, there have been a loss, there have been a death, or there have been a divorce, or whatever it might be. And then I think what is very important to see when there is a loss or a separation or thing of that nature is that actually we will be in a strange mood for about a year. We will be in this intense mood for a year. So, for, of course, when the first three months will be the worst, and then we, it will be quite intense for a year. And then generally life goes on, and then it's replaced by something else. So we have to see, is it more kind of something which seems to happen because of mental habits or this emotional patterning, or is it more something, I would say, external conditions? I know for myself, when my... Um, when my brother died, I was a nun in Korea and I could not go to the ceremony because I was in Korea and all that. But I felt really this strange mood for a year that at any moment I could, I could cry. And I would just cry repeatedly. And then when my father died, the same thing happened for about a year. So that's when I realized that actually back, it's a big shock and it has to go through the system. So we cannot say, I'm fine. I mean, you have moments which are fine. I think it's very important. Life goes on. So although you're very sad, you're also fine at one level. You're still working, relating. But there will be this which accompanies you. So I think there are different conditions in terms of the, the depression. I mean, there is a book I read, um, Noonday Demon, maybe. It's in my list of recommended books for anybody who is interested on the website. And this is like basically an encyclopedia of depression. And I think that's one of the best books I've read in terms of looking at that. And one chapter is on uh, people being poor. That, you know, kind of looking at people when they are poor, then it's much harder for them. And they're more likely, like he was talking about lots of women single mother and very poor circumstances which were depressed. And then as soon 
as you gave them, they had a little more money, a little more kind of training and things, generally the mood lifted. So they were not, in a way, clinically depressed, but you could say they were conditionally depressed because of having three jobs or all kinds of things. So I think there are many different conditions for what I can call one as depression. I think there are many different. And also there can be many different things which can help us. I think that's important, that not just meditation or mindfulness is going to help us. I mean, recently I have had some friends who have done lots of meditation, but who have had a low mood for a long time. And they thought that just meditating would help them with the low mood until they realized maybe I also need medication. And what is interesting, they took medication for six months and then after that they could stop it and then they were much better. And then they, they were fine and then they, could, they would just take the medication when there was really difficult circumstances in their life. <laughs> and that's why I think with depression... One has to be careful because it's so low and so energy, then sometimes medication helps us to go more on the plateau. And then you can help yourself more than when you really dip down and with no energy whatsoever. Anything else about this? If not, then maybe we could do some walking meditation for 20 minutes until uh, 10 past 3. And this time, with the walking meditation, what I would recommend is a different type of meditation. It's the what is this meditation. So as you walk, you can start be being aware of the body and then just asking either what is this totally open-ended to the whole moment to feel a sensation of questioning, or you can use it in what I would call a more modern manner, which is you have a thought, a feeling, and sensation, you just ask, what is this? Not to get an answer, not to analyze or anything, but just to know it in the moment. So, and then we come back in 20 minutes. So now to finish, I would like to look at love. So again, this is, a, I would say, a creative function of the human being. And I think it's actually essential. Uh, love is really essential. 
And I know sometimes you, if you're in spiritual circle, you hear that you must not be attached. So how can you love? And that's why I prefer to talk about grasping and creative engagement. I think it's much more uh, useful as a language when we talk about love. And uh, I think when we love someone, I think the last thing we want to be is detached and uninvolved. <laughs> Once I read an article in a tricycle Buddhist magazine many years ago, and there was this young, this young woman <coughs> telling us about a travail with all her Buddhist uh, lovers. And they are very much into sex, but very into uninvolved in terms of loving affection. <laughs> so she felt it was unsatisfactory, so she dropped them. So I thought it was interesting what we do. Now, personally, I think love is essential for human beings. And possibly meditation could help us to develop creative, wise love. And so a love which is non-grasping, but a love which appreciates, a love which cares. And also I think in love there is, I think that's why it's very important love, because it's open us to others. It opens us to life. So it helps us to come out of our self-centeredness. And so in a way, loving someone is an opportunity to open, is an opportunity to experience ourselves in a very different way. And what is interesting is the texture, the texture of love. And I would say the texture of love is warmth. And in a way, you could start by like. When you like somebody, when you love something, you generally feel warm when you're in contact with it. For example, I love snow, and I live in uh, the south of France, so it comes very rarely. And so when it's so snow, I feel really warm, really elated, and I want to go outside and just, you know, I really, it makes me feel different. Or my niece, I love my niece, so generally I see her, and again, I feel warmth, I feel elated. So I think it has this kind of ability to make us feel different. But then, and I think this is a very important texture to experience in life. And the problem with love, you could say, is that there is ourself with all our conditions. And often, we don't like ourselves. And then we stuck with somebody we don't like. But imagine, if you loved yourself, you would feel warm all the time. You would feel elated all the time to be with this wonderful person, existing, breathing. So that's the first thing I think we have to look at, is self-love. How can I love myself? How can I appreciate myself? And I think this is, in a way, nearly a function I would say of meditation, because through meditation, we can become more aware of ourselves. And in becoming more aware of ourselves, we become not only aware of our patterns, negative, painful patterns, but also think you can be more aware of your own capacity, of your own potential. And that generally makes you really appreciate yourself, really to, ah, I can do that. Oh, I'm able to do that. 
And I think this really makes a big difference. And I think that's one of the functions for me of meditation, that acceptance, not only of the negative qualities, but the acceptance of the positive quality. And that acceptance helping us to cultivate it even more, to develop it even more. So then, then we can develop that care for ourselves, that appreciation, that love for ourselves, which I think is very important if then we want to love others. I also think that warmth, that relationship to others is very important. And I could see that with my grandmother uh, as she was living downstairs and I was living upstairs. Then whenever I came back from travel, she would see me and she would beam. Ah, you back. And she would be so happy to see me. It's really kind of, you know, really she, she felt so joyful, so happy. And then the last two years of her life, it's like a switch had gone off. Like she could not relate to us at that level anymore. So I would come back and she would, hmm? she, there was not that effect anymore. But what was interesting is that she could still have that effect with animals and with flowers. So she would suddenly, in, in the spring, she would bring us this huge kind of go and cut all the trees <laughs> in flowers and just give them to us. She would come back with this thing like it was seemed to be important for her still that feeling happy to see this flower and then giving us these flowers. Or when my niece came with her little uh, fluffy rabbit, uh, then she would sit next to the rabbit the whole time. Like just with being with that rabbit, rekindle some of that warmth, which I think is so essential to being human. <laughs> but then with this love, what is interesting also is to look at not just love between a romantic relationship, but love in general. Loving one's family, loving one's children, loving humanity in a way. And what is interesting is living in a community. I don't know if some of you have lived in community, but I live in community for many years. For 10 years, I was a nun in Korea, so total community life. And then I went back to live in England. Then for about eight years, six to eight years, I lived in a community. And what is interesting living in community is that in a way you don't choose. It's kind of like an arranged, arranged marriage. You don't choose, you know, everybody in there. And so you realize that you see actually you don't get on with some because it, you think like, why do they think this way? I would never think that. You know, and generally you like the one who agree with you and, you know, think the same way or perceive the same way. But what was interesting living in community for all these years is that even the people I did not like, I did not agree with, actually I cared for. There was this connection through living together, through sharing the space together, which means that when we see them now, we're so happy to see each other. Even if when we were there, we were not always, you know, the best of friends. But it really showed me that to love, to care, to appreciate, you might not necessarily have to like. Because I think like is based on many different conditions. 
And to me, this is quite a revelation uh, to, to kind of loving people, loving humanity. But also what we have to look is when we love somebody, then of course it creates pleasant feeling, pleasant feeling tone. Especially when you fall in love. Falling in love is like, you know, mega, mega pleasant feeling tone. <laughs> but actually it's very disturbing because it's so intense. And I know when I fell in love with my husband, I was quite happy when it stopped because it was so all over the place. Ooh. And then it settled. You know, and then in a way we could really start to cultivate love. Because I think what is interesting in terms of loving is that, you know, let's say you fall in love with somebody and then you decide, you know, you love them so much you want to be with them all the time. So you decide to live together. And so you start, you get together and then you have the feeling the honeymoon is gone <laughs> and there start to be problems. But what is interesting is where do the problems come from? The problems don't come from the love. The problem comes from the habits. That you have your own habits and they have their own habits. And when you were falling in love, you did not notice any of these things. You know, they were just disappearing in the glow of the intensity of the feeling. But now that has gone down a bit. You live together and then you start to think. But if he or she really loved me, she, he or she would do this, you know, you know, and they would change. Like, because generally we think our habits are better than theirs, <laughs> but they think their habits are better than ours. So that's where the problem comes from. Can we accommodate each other's habits? And can we see that a lot of our habits are actually a survival mechanism. That's the way we act. A lot of the habit is survival mechanism. In the past or sometime in our childhood, we have difficulty and we helped ourselves through this difficulty with these habits. And then we don't need to survive in these difficult circumstances, but we'll still keep the habit just in case. They were useful ones and then we get a little stuck. But then, generally, they, the habit can go down a bit if things are fine. But when things are not fine, then the habit, survival, reappears. And this is something I noticed with uh, my husband when we travel, when we used to, I mean, we travel still a lot. But I really used to have problems with airports. And then I learned to creatively engage with being in airports. <laughs> and then there was still the fact that whenever something, shh, kind of urgent or happened, I would go faster and he would go slower. <laughs> and then I thought he would do it on purpose to annoy me until I realized that, no, it was his survival mechanism. For me, when something is problematic, I go faster. Him, slow down, look, very Buddhist, you know. And then once we saw that, now when something is difficult, we look at each other. And then one goes just a little bit faster, and then the other one a little, but not too much. So it's kind of, still we are each in our own mechanism, but not so intense. So then we can, you know, come to some kind of compromise, harmony in the middle. So I think this is what we have to see 
in terms, you know, kind of like living with people or just with your children or with your family. I think we have to see sometimes our love is very conditional. If only you did this, then I could love you. If only you did that, then I could love you. But then they will do the same to you. This is a problem with conditional love. If you set this condition, then they will set that condition. And it's more how much we can accept and how can we work together. Because of course we don't need to accept all the terrible, difficult patterns, but some of them we can accept and some of them we have to work with. But we can only work with from what I would call one of the aspects of love is the fact that if you love somebody, it means you really accept them. And this is in a way the gift of love, that in a way saying yes to that person, yes to the existence of that person. And that is amazing to feel that somebody really accepts you. I mean, you think you are really not so good, but that they say you're good, you think, wow, maybe there is something in it, you know? So generally it kind of, you know, give you a little uplift. And at the same time, you have to, you have to work because some of the things are not easy. So in a way, to accept and at the same time to transform. I think it's the same thing. But if you start from that place of acceptance, then you can talk about what is difficult. To me, this is very important. And so what we do when we love, when we care, when we appreciate, is that we develop trust. And then when we look at the way we are, it's not from this fearful place, but from a trusting place. And so that's what we need to do. But that it be with children, family, and the same with family. Sometimes, of course, there are difficult stories in family. But again, how can we creatively engage with the person? You know, sometimes some people are really nice, and then it's very easy to creatively engage. And sometimes people are quite difficult. And then it's kind of like, it doesn't mean you have to be with them all the time, but how can I creatively engage with that person? What, what is the amount of time I can spend with that person? Another thing I think we have to look is with children. You know, children are very mercurial. I mean, they're really impermanence in action. But then we take it so seriously. You know, they kind of look at you and they say, I hate you. <laughs> like a dagger in your heart, you know, because you stop them from doing some video game or whatever it was. And then you take it seriously. You know, they're going to hate me forever after. You know, now I must let them watch TV forever after. But just to see that the next minute, it can change again. So I think, again, we have to be careful with that. You know, that there is love as something which is quite steady. But then that also we need to cultivate it. We need to, in a way, construct it, develop it. So it grows. It's not just one quantity and this is it. It's really something we have to grow between each other. And then we have to look at, in terms of love, what is it we are grasping at? Are we grasping at the person? And then we stick to them everywhere. You know, we want to be with them because it's so, it's good to be with them. And we stick to them. Then they feel a little kind of, you know, stuck. But then if we do that, generally we can't develop love 
with others in terms of, I think, there are so many different kinds of love. You have romantic love, but you also need family love. You also need friends. You also have love of plants, animals. There are many different loves. I think we need to be careful of not just putting it in the romantic love category. Or are we grasping at the feeling they produce? And what if they don't produce a feeling anymore? I mean, you know, if you're really tired, you know, you might see your beloved and think, you know, no effect. What's going on? Is it me? Is it him? So we have to be careful at that. Grasping at the feeling. Love means that the feeling is there all the time, day and night, in the same way. It's not possible. It too is important. It, it, it doesn't mean the love is not there. It's like the ocean. The ocean is always there. But the shape of the ocean is very different. It can be very flat or it can be really tumultuous. So I think we have to again to see it's not just one thing. So am I grasping at the person, grasping at the feeling? Or am I grasping at the fact that I exist in the eye of another? And that's problematic. Because when they're not there, does it mean I don't exist? And I think that's why self-love is so important. We need to love ourselves at the same time as we love others and we loved by others. I think this is very important. Otherwise, it becomes really difficult, really painful. And then the last thing, just a little about uh, romantic love. And I think we have to be careful with romantic love because we get really quite a little mystical with it, you know. We love it so intense and then we're going to read our minds and we'll know what each other feels at any given moment. And personally, I'm not sure it's a good idea, you know, to know everything about each other all the time. I think it's good to get to know each other up to a point. But be careful with that romantic idea, like, you know, kind of suddenly we kind of become a symbiote or whatever it is. And I remember once I was uh, gardening in France. And suddenly I thought, hmm, it's hot. Oh, it's so hot. I'm thirsty. Hmm, would be nice to have a glass of water. It would be nice if Stephen brought me a glass of water. If Stephen loved me, he would bring me a glass of water. And then Stephen appeared, no glass of water. And then I laughed because I saw what I'd just done, you know. And now he always brings me a glass of water. <laughs> so anyway, that's what I wanted to say about that subject. Any questions or comments? And this is the last uh, uh, period of discussion together. This really, because uh, if I may, I would like to finish a little early, towards 4.30. And so if you have any questions, then it's really wide open. It can go first this way and then it go here. The very, very, very few times I have been in love, um, I have experienced an experience of the body mm-hmm. that is very transcendental. I mean, it's not just some 
obsession. It's actually, there is, a, there is a, definitely a phenomenon taking place. And I mean, I don't have to prove to you that it is. But what struck me about, struck me about it is that, that the, the sentiment is so profound that it's, it's akin to some kind of enlightenment or, or the achievement of the collapse of the, of the personality, you know, walls. Mm-hmm. And so you, you have this feeling that all of a sudden you are immortal. There is no death. Nothing bad is going to happen to you. Um, and then the next thing is, but if she leaves, I'm dead. If she leaves, I'm mortal. If she leaves, enlightenment is not happening. In fact, it never happened. So it, it, when, when you're in the middle of this, there is no, there is no conceptual anything that's going to help you out of it. I mean, sure, you can perhaps tell yourself these things that, you know, and, and reassure yourself that you're just living through it, but, but, but you are in the middle of it. And so my, I guess my question is, um, I mean, how do you, I mean, you, you can't do some things about it, but I mean, what, what can you really, I mean, you just have to let it run through, I guess, right? Uh, yes. <laughs> you see, I think what you're describing is a falling in love. And the falling in love is you basically it's a focusing device. <laughs> it's an amplification device. So that you fall in love, contact, feeling, suddenly hold the focus, your whole thing, your whole energy, everything goes into this person. And then it's reciprocated. That's what makes a big. And then there is this two focalizing device on each other. And then you have this huge thing, which, no, it's very intense and quite nice. Because in that moment, yeah, in a way, the self goes because you're so focused on the other. And as you say, the problem, it doesn't last. <laughs> you see, because intensity, we only, I think, able to stand a certain level of intensity. Generally, something comes up. I mean, you have to go to the bathroom. You have to go to the supermarket. You have to, you know, you can't just kind of bathe in the (laughs) focalizing machine (laughs) all the time. So at some point, and so that's why I'm saying that personally, I feel it's possible that, you see, once the falling in love has passed, I think then there is a possibility of creative wise love. But I agree, in the falling in love, it's very tricky. You kind of, yeah, you get in and out of it, but it's so attractive. It's so nice. (laughs) You can't, you know, because proliferation really go mega, mega. You know, you see yourself, you know, retiring together in the Bahamas or whatever it might be, and off you go. And, and this, of course, it has to happen. It's kind of like a shock to the system, and it's wonderful, and it's special, and it's a little kind of troubling too, I think. And then it goes down, because like everything, it, has, it comes, and it passes. But then, I think, from that point, you can have that creative, wise love. And, but that has to be cultivated. And I think often the problem is to think love is just that intense feeling where the self goes and I'm just kind of nearly like in union. But that comes and goes. And then what is it I appreciate about the person? 
how I care about the person, how can we share our life together. And then that becomes a really kind of, I would say, a practice. And then there was, uh, okay, behind, and then we'll go here. I was very interested in what this gentleman said, and I wanted to uh, respond. It's a a bit of um, Buddhist dharma, but it helped me a lot. But I had the antithetical experience, and I was the one who was suffering. I was taking care of my father for a few years, and then I watched him die over a period of weeks. And it was almost unbearable. I literally watched him deteriorate in every way. And I was attending a Sunday night with Eugene Cash, and I asked him, how can I mitigate the suffering? How can I enter? We were doing the Brahma Viharas on joy. And I asked him, how can I alleviate the suffering and enter joy? And he told me something which I've used a lot since. He said that I had taken birth as the one who was suffering. I identified with, I am suffering. And this is what he said. He said, the conventional reality is that, yes, you are suffering, but the ultimate reality is who is suffering? Who is doing the suffering? So he invoked the idea of anatta. And Howie Cohn puts it, whose story is it anyway? I had bought this story and built a monument to it. So what I do now is I, I bifurcate my, my story. And I tell myself, yes, I'm suffering. Yes, I'm in love. I've also experienced that, but didn't want to get out of it. Um, yes, I'm suffering, or yes, I'm in love. That's the conventional reality. But the ultimate reality is there, there is no I. I'm a phenomenon. I'm the five skandhas, the five stuffs. And so that assuages me. And that helps me realize that um, I'm telling myself a story that I'm suffering or I'm in love. So I don't know if this is too esoteric, but I have found it helpful and I felt compelled to share it. Thank you. Sure, sure. Thank you for sharing. You see, a a simple way to to look at what you describe is the difference with I am my suffering, I am this feeling of love, and I happen to experience this suffering because of these conditions arising. I think the difference is between back to the grasping and the identification, I am just that. I think that's one of the problems is that when we grasp, we reduce ourselves to that. And then the whole of ourselves is suffering. And then that's too much. But if you say, well, yes, there is suffering in my life because my father is dying, I think, Fair enough, but I am not just that. I am more than that. I am, I have other friends. I mean, my life is very full and we are multi-perspectival. So this is one aspect of my life, but generally we, it becomes our whole life. And I think that's why it's so painful. The same with the love, it's this is it. And then you reduce all your life to that, which then if she leaves, everything goes. But if you think, yeah, it's wonderful to have love in my life, but my whole life is not just that. There is this and this and this and all this multi-perspective in my life. And you had a question? It was just a comment. I 
Yeah, sure, comment, please. Please, please comment. Oh, good this too. Is intimidating to me. But anyway, I just wanted to thank you for my for our day, and I just felt that uh, what I gathered from today was that uh, engaging would be uh, to discern, and if you discern, it would be if you cook, for example, then if you know your f- more about the flour and more about the sugar, say, then you would be able to get a better result if you have a problem at that time. And uh, also, uh, I find in my life, uh, with uh, more years into m- on my path, that humor was a big thing for me, to have humor about everything, if I could, you know. So that's all. Thank you. Well, this is kind of a naive question, but I want to go back to your vignette of why do I picture you in the mountains? I don't remember all the details, but you had to go to the bathroom in the middle of the night, Mm. and you were wrestling with fear, Mm. and then you asked the question... um, What is this? Yeah, what what is this? And, and, And you've had us do that, and I would like a window into your mind, if I could... Because, because you said you don't ask it for an answer and you don't ask it to analyze. So I attempted to do it, but I would like a window into your mind, either in that situation or in another situation. What, what do you greet? You know, what, what, walk me through it if you could. Okay, so in that instance, I think it's, it's what made me realize later on uh, the function of uh, f- concentration. I feel that one of the function of concentration is when you come back, you don't just come back to the breath or the question, what is this? You come back to the whole moment. And the way I realized that actually is once I was sitting outside of that e- event, I was sitting in meditation and it was raining on the roof. And I realized that When I was asking the question, what is this, I could hear the rain, just in the background. When I was totally distracted, lost in a thought, the rain disappeared. And that's when I realized the function of concentration, what I would call inclusive concentration, is that you come back not only to the breath, but you come back to the whole moment. So the breath is like an anchor, or the question is like an anchor. And I think that's what happened that night. By coming back to what is this, I came back to the reality of the present. That I was in the middle of the night and really I was far from everywhere. So for somebody to come and get me, I mean, it would have been a bit tricky. Especially in those days where they did not have so many cars. I mean, it was really bit tricky to get me. So it was, to me, it was like when I was afraid that the man was there with a knife going to get me, it was total amplification. And I was really somewhere else in a way. But when I came back to the what is this, it was, hey, I am in this temple, in this place, in the middle of the night. And actually there is nobody out there. So I see that the function actually of concentration, of the coming back. And of course, also a little the, conscious, uh, the, question, the function of the questioning. So in terms of the questioning, this is in a way that technique in Korea, 
which is a Zen technique. You might have heard about the koan, but in Korea they put more emphasis on the questioning itself. And so the idea is the question is just like a diving board to develop a sensation of questioning. And what is interesting with that practice, because I think each practice has a little different effect. The breath, listening, questioning, loving kindness, they all have a little different effect, even if they work all with samatha and vipassana. That with the questioning, it really develops this questioning mind, but not an anxious questioning mind, because often questioning is associated either with, for example, existentialism, like, you know, what is the meaning of the universe? But that question is not about that. Or often we have questioning and we kind of like more like doubting, what is called negative doubt, vacillating doubt. But in the Zen tradition, they say, great questioning, great awakening. Small questioning, small awakening. No questioning, no awakening. <laughs> so the idea is really to develop a sensation of questioning. And then over time, the words are not as important as the questioning itself. But what is interesting in terms of daily life is that it starts to help the mind to be less fixed and a little more open and also to start to see in any situation different possibility. It kind of really becomes like a little of a multi-choice, but um, a kind of uh, not destabilizing multi-choice, but more, oh yeah, we could do this, or you could do that, and this could be more appropriate. So you can see that there are possibilities. You don't feel stuck. So that's what I could say about this practice. Yes. Um, I have a question about um, changing habits. You know, it, it, you've, you've stressed staying in the present, but it seems to me that you... you, you it's it's worth thinking about the future because anytime you change a habit, you have to. It's kind of like making an investment. I mean, you, you're going through a period of suffering, and for a, a a purpose, and so you have to somehow think about the future. I mean, yeah, no, no. I think it's very important that when I talk of the moment, it's kind of just a rhetorical device because the moment, where is it? It's going all the time. The moment is a bit of the past, a bit of now, and a bit of the future. I think it's very important to see we're not talking about freezing this, because this is actually constant flowing. So, of course, I think the past is important in terms we can learn from it. Also, we can see where we come from. We can see also that we might have progress. We might be different than we were before. That, I think, is important to see. Then the future is, in a way... Why should I change now? Personally, I would say, of course, you can change to have a better future. Personally, I would say also to change out of this desire, which I think personally is a good desire, to develop wisdom and compassion. So that in a way to see that if I get, stay stuck in this habit, there is no very little wisdom and compassion. And it makes me suffer, it makes others suffer. And so in a way to, to in a way orient ourselves, our life toward wisdom and compassion as an aspiration. So of course we look to now but to the future too. That as I go in my life, I want to develop more and more 
of it. And what is it going to help me to do that? To be less stuck in my negative habit and to cultivate more positive habit, which I think is very much what the Buddha is about. He's not saying no negative habit. He's just saying there are difficult habits. How can you come to terms with them? How you can de-intensify them? How you can creatively engage with them? So I think yes. But of course, uh, when, when some habit is so entangled, it's kind of like it's so you. Uh, somebody was so, talking about somebody who was really depressed for many, many years. And he became identified with that. And then he took medication, he did therapy, and then he really felt different. But then time to time he would feel, this is weird. It's not me. Me is like the depressed one. And it's kind of so he had some kind of odd feeling of, hmm, I was that person. I was kind of comfortable there in some weird way. And then he had to become habituated to feeling different. And that was quite a kind of a thing. And I think sometimes we, there is that movement. And then, of course, because you know, ah, it's better. So you kind of, you see yourself going back a little and think, mm -mm, it's better this way. I mean, there is this wonderful story of the head guy of the red, what is it, red or chili pepper? <laughs> okay, that rock group? The odd chili pepper. Yeah. yeah, okay. So, and I forgot his name. But he wrote a book about his life and his addiction. And I thought the end was just amazing. Just amazing. I could not read the in between. It was a bit too tough for my little sensitivity. <laughs> but it was amazing. Because, you know, this young man was kind of from age 15, has been with drugs and things and really kind of. A, and he goes one rehab, two rehab, third rehab. Third rehab, he go back home. And he said, there was not a day when I did not feel of going scoring and taking drugs, but no, I'm not going to do it. I'm not going to do it. It's not a good idea. I know where it will lead me. And then suddenly, it's a weekend, and without thinking about it, if I, he takes his backpack, he goes out, he's on the doorstep, to go for the day, just a, a weekend of just, you know, bloating himself out with drugs or whatever. And then something stops him on the doorstep. Like he's really going, like even it was kind of happened without even him being aware of it. And suddenly he sees himself that he has a choice to go back to what he's used to do. And he knows what it feels like. And then something within him said, no. I know what, if I go there, I know what it's going to be like. No, I'm not going to do that. And then he has the strength to go back in. And this is partly with the future, because, you know, oh, if I do this, I will go there. <coughs> if I go back in the house, this won't happen. Something else will happen. And he said from that moment on, then it became a little easier that every day the, the craving was a little less. And maybe, unless there is a question? Yeah. I wondered um, what drew you to Korea and how you learned Korean. 
Uh, what took me to Korea, I mean, if you, it's a long story, but if you're interested, I have a book called Women in Korean Zen. And in it, there is my whole story. But um, I have an accident in a plane ticket. I was in, <laughs> I was in Thailand. I did not have money anymore. It was in 75. I was planning to go to Japan to earn some money because it was possible then. And then I went to the tourist agency, got a ticket, and then the cheapest must have been Korean airline. <laughs> Korean airline ticket was forced to go to Seoul instead of going to Osaka on the way to Tokyo. <coughs> so then that happened. And then by chance, I met Korean monks in Thailand, and they told me lots of meditation in Korea. So I thought, well, I have $100. Let's go to Korea for a month. And I stayed 10 years. And it was the best thing I ever did. And Korean, I just learned it there with a book. Okay. Yes. Will this talk be on Dharma Seed? Uh, I think so. I think so. I think the, the talks, it, as far as I know, it's been recorded. Okay. And then they say that they're going to make it kind of nice without the pause and whatever. And then it looks like it could be on Damasid. Yeah, that was the idea. Okay, and maybe we can finish here. And thank you very much. It was very nice to spend the day with you. Thank you. Have a good life. <laughs>